Hello and welcome back to Battlefield Ukraine with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. Well, against earlier predictions, the onset of winter has not done much to slow the tempo of the war, uh, either on the battlefield or the home front, with intensive fighting continuing to rage around Bakhmut uh, in the Donetsk and Putin persevering with his campaign to freeze Ukrainian civilians into submission. The failure of the Russians to deliver anything that can be called a victory is creating problems for Putin at home. One area it's really hard to get a handle on is the fluctuations of Russian domestic opinion, which is why we're very lucky this week to have spoken to Dr. Ilya Yablokov of Sheffield University. Ilya is a Russian himself and an expert in Russian information strategy, which has been, of course, a big part of the war. He will be telling us all about that, as well as painting a very dramatic and alarming picture of what may be coming next in Russia. But first of all, let's talk a bit about the fighting and in particular uh, the battle around the city of Bakhmut. Uh, this has been pretty underreported, but it's been going on for months and it shows no signs of abating. Reporters uh, who've been down there recently paint a picture of a sort of 21st century Verdun with imagery of muddy trenches, constant artillery bombardments and landscapes utterly destroyed. So you've got this sort of sea of mud with tree stumps sticking out, uh, rather like a sort of Paul Nash painting from the Western Front in the First World War. What's going on there, Well, It seems to me uh, that Bakhmut's uh, strategic value to the Russians is pretty limited. And you look at the map, it's not really near anywhere. And here they are, you know, week in, week out, feeding more troops into the meat grinder uh, to no obvious sort of beneficial effect, apart from the political one of, of saying that they do control the uh, the Donetsk, which, of course, now is allegedly part of Russia. How do you see it? Well, I think that's it. I think this is, uh, you know, they need to get hold of it so they can announce it in the press. But its actual strategic and operational value is is very limited. Uh, it's a complete mystery because what's likely happening here, Patrick, as we know from some of the pictures and some of the reports, is that the body count on the Russian side is going up alarmingly around Bakhmut. There seems to be strong indications that they're putting a lot of their new guys in there, these untrained, unmotivated, frankly, soldiers. And this is all going to backfire on them sooner rather than later. We're going to hear from Ilya in the interview the potential problems that are being caused at home. And of course, this seems to be the sort of thing that's going to exacerbate that because sooner or later, the women of Russia are going to say, what on earth is going on? Yeah, just to get back to actually Russian battlefield approach, I mean, what they're doing here, it seems to me, is a fundamental error. You know, they're not learning the mistakes of, of the previous bloodbaths they've got engaged in, again, to no great sort of military purpose. So I think in the progress of a war, the side that actually learns from its mistakes quickest and draws the correct conclusions and adjusts accordingly is going to have an advantage. Now, that's something that we absolutely have not seen on the Russian side. They've played into the, the Ukrainians' hands over and over again. This is developing into a battle of attrition. So concentrating on your forces some, somewhere like this is just inviting the Ukrainians to use their advantage with their long-range artillery, rocket artillery, etc. I mean, it just seems to be an act of, of, of stupidity. Yeah, what the um, we've heard from previous guests on the show that what the Ukrainians have done very well is use artillery to soften up. And actually, they have, I mean, there'll be an exceptions, of course, and, and Bakhmut is probably one of them. 
But there have been very few instances where they're actually launching large scale attacks. We heard a little bit from Colin Freeman last week about how some I suppose you'd call them medium-scale attacks are being put in by Ukrainian forces. So it's not as though they're not suffering any casualties at all. But I suspect it's it's a relatively small amount compared to the number that the Russians are losing, particularly in places like Bakhmut. Yeah. This, of course, raises once again the question of casualties. Uh, this is a big part of the propaganda war. We've just had uh, President Zelensky saying that he expects there'll be 100,000 Russian dead by the end of the year, as well as God knows how many mercenaries, as he puts it. Now, the figures are a bit disputed, but there's, even the Americans are saying that 100,000 casualties, that's dead and wounded, minimum. So you know, this is clearly an ongoing massive problem for Putin at home and you know, recruitment. They say they're not going to go for another sort of mass levy. But uh, there was an interesting story that came out a few days ago showing footage of a bunch of guys who are jogging up and down in uniform. Uh, and it turns out, uh, according to the story, that these are actually uh, football fans or football hooligans, more precisely, uh, who are supporters of a team called FC Tula Arsenal. Tula is about 125 miles south of Moscow. And this is meant to be a sort of morale-boosting video showing these guys taking part in drills uh, before being sent to the front lines in Ukraine. Um, and local media is saying these, these are sort of known as, as local sort of troublemakers. But it doesn't say much, does it? Is this, you know, they've already raided the prisons and now they're, <laughs> they're drafting in these football hooligans. I must say, they didn't look terribly impressive in the, on the video. They were wearing these skull masks, which I would have thought was um, sort of tempting fate, really. And various people have pointed out, well, that's what, what you can expect uh, once you get to the front line. So all in all, a pretty ham-fisted exercise. Yeah, and um, there, there's a fascinating uh, poll that's come out of Russia this week, carried out apparently by the Kremlin's Federal Guard Service and obtained by Medusa, a Russian opposition website. Uh, and this is bad news for Putin, if it's accurate. Uh, and, it, and it states that the number of Russians in favour of continuing the war in Ukraine has recently fallen dramatically with with now just one in four supporting the conflict. In July, that number was 57% of respondents. So they wanted to see Russian troops remain in Ukraine. And the figure, as I say, has fallen to 25%. Support for negotiations, on the other hand, to end the nine-month conflict has risen from 32% to 55%. This is quite dramatic, isn't it, Patrick? And it backs up, I think, the point that Ilya made to us, which is that there is a real danger that the war is going to collapse, not so much on the battlefield, which we've been suggesting in recent weeks, but actually in Russia, that Russia is getting hollowed out now and that Putin is running out of options. Yeah, this seems to be uh, supported by another kind of cack-handed uh, propaganda intervention by Putin, where earlier this week he met a group of mothers whose sons were fighting uh, in Ukraine and they were all tremendously supportive of the war and uh, he did his sort of father of the nation bit saying yes we understand your your pain and your anxiety but you know this is a, a war that has to be won for russia and of course uh, all the women were instantly exposed as being professional propagandists They're all members of, of pro-putin groups etc so the whole thing was completely phony and they were rumbled straight away by russians so there were lots of so social media 
contributions from mothers whose sons were also at the front and who absolutely did not share this supportive view and saying it's disgraceful that you parade these women as being real mothers. It's not clear at all how many actually did have sons at the front. So, you know, again, backfired hugely. Just to get back to the the football hooligans, uh, this is not a first, actually. I remember back in the Yugoslav Wars uh, when uh, Arkan, do you remember the notorious Arkan, a warlord, very nasty character, sort of professional criminal, turned ultra Serbian patriot. And he recruited his unit, the Tigers, from um, the, the terraces of Red Star Belgrade. So there is a precedent for that. Fortunately, we haven't reached a point here in Britain where we've had to stoop to drafting in Millwall supporters. I don't know if they're still the bad boys that they used to be, but anyway, we've got a way to go <laughs> yet. Yes. Now, moving on, Patrick, there was an extraordinary story coming out of Belarusia that the foreign minister, Vladimir Makai, died suddenly. And the suspicion from some of the commentators uh, who are looking at this, including opposition figures in Russia, the theory is that he was assassinated by the FSB. Well, that's one theory that's been put up. And what what are the grounds for that? Well, a couple of things. He had been, prior to the 2020 protests in Belarus, trying to move the country into a more kind of pro-Western stance. And that changed very quickly, of course, uh, when there was a crackdown. And he's been a vocal supporter of the war ever since then. But the other thing that's given Graham for suspicion is that Mackay was due to attend this week an Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe. That's the OSCE. And that was in Poland to meet key Western politicians and officials, a session from which the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, was banned. So uh, the theory goes that if he was assassinated, and poisoning seems to be the favourite theory, it was because he was possibly putting out peace feelers, or at least feelers of cooperation towards the West. Patrick, do you think there's anything in this? The answer is all I I really don't know. But what's fascinating is uh, how this sort of thing has just become the norm, hasn't it? When you hear someone's died in mysterious circumstances connected in any way to the Russian side uh, of this story, then the assumption is that they've been bumped off by the Kremlin. And it's got to the point where the most interesting contribution I've seen to this story was from Professor Mark Galliotti, who's a very shrewd, knowledgeable expert, who made the sensational claim that he may indeed, that Nakai may indeed have actually died from a heart attack, as officially stated. So we've, we've got to that point where no one believes anything anymore. So we'll be getting some real insights into what's going on in Russia. Next from Dr. Ilya Yabaklov. Saul and I spoke to him earlier this week, and this is what he told us. Ilya, welcome to the podcast, and thanks very much for giving us the benefit of your expertise in a very important area. Can I just start off by asking you how both sides have approached the uh, information strategy in the conflict? Well, for the Russian side, it's clearly the goal is to, you know, muddy the waters, push the agenda, convince the uh, international community, if possible at all, that there are neo-Nazis in the Ukrainian government or that the ethnic Russians in the east of Ukraine are under repressions, etc. So basically, all those false narratives, false facts that the Kremlin was trying to push, either it's the 
you know, the desire of Vladimir Putin, it's his kind of personal thing, or it's, you know, the policy, the wider policy agenda of the so-called Siloviks, so law enforcement services, elites in Russia, we don't know. Well, it's, we can, we can speculate about that. For Ukraine, it's, in a way, it's a much easier task because they are on the attack. And they have to defend themselves. And it's clear when you're playing, it's a David and Goliath in many ways. When you're fighting such a big and uh, influential enemy, a tech-savvy enemy, you know, the best strategy is to be as open as possible. So the Ukrainian government really did a great job in putting together a communication strategy that would, um, you know, catch the attention of ordinary people around the world, primarily in democratic countries, by saying there is a democracy in the east of Europe, somewhere where you would never have thought, and we are fighting for the freedom of Europe and the whole world. Basically, it's a, they turned it into the idea there is a front line of democracy in the east of Europe. And that really worked. But I must say that in terms of communication strategy, Ukraine is like in the first league for me, at least. Have the Russians actually made any headway selling their narrative anywhere in the world? It depends. The strategy, they they quickly realized, the Russians quickly realized that pushing those false narratives in Western countries, in, in Europe or in the United States, is very problematic. Because there is a there is a very clear consensus that what Russia is doing is wrong, so they have quickly, and we know that from multiple research that we made, they quickly switched to BRICS countries. So they've started targeting India, African countries, uh, the Latin America, just to make sure that what Putin thinks is the majority of the world, we target them. So you want to say, and that's kind of, that's the recurring narrative in Russian propaganda. Yes, there is a, like one billion, the golden billion that is against Russia. But look at the number of those countries that are actively against Russia and look at the rest of the population who either is neutral, meaning they receive bonuses from, for example, buying cheap Russian oil, or they are pro-Russian and they are the majority. So that's, that's kind of, it's a populist trick that the Kremlin is trying to arrange in a way from early March when they realized that A, their strategy falling and B, the sources, the media sources that have been tailored to do that, to fulfill this mission, they've been banned, first and foremost, Sputnik and RT. What interests me, Ilya, is the extent to which people in Russia actually believe some of this propaganda. Do we have any sense of how it's filtered down to the population at large and, and therefore how much support there actually is for this special operation in Ukraine? It's interesting that you call it special operation. Hopefully you're putting quotation marks. Yeah, exactly. Well, I am. The aggression in Ukraine, let's be clear. So there is an easy answer and the difficult answer. The easy answer is to say that the majority of Russians support that. That answer is wrong. So we need to find a difficult answer. The difficult answer is we need to see that phenomenon of the so-called, again, quotation marks, support of Kremlin's actions in Ukraine from the perspective of the 30 years of really unfair social and economic affairs in the country institutionalized by the Kremlin. So we are talking about 
the way how the country was reformed, the trauma for millions of people uh, of the USSR and the way how the USSR collapsed, and a highly repressive legislation. So if you compare the two things, 2014 annexation of Crimea and 2022, the war in Ukraine, in 2014, only a few media have been repressed. Not even closed, right? Repressed. So uh, their teams were expelled or uh, management was expelled, but the media kept working because there was a, some sort of a consensus that it's going to go smoothly for the Kremlin. There will be no social unrest. What we see in 2022, once the Kremlin realized that everything goes against the plan, they shut down every voice, every possible voice, right? Why is it done? Because they're really afraid of, of the rights. And the second thing, yes, certainly there will be, let's say, 25, and we've got some sociological research on that. We've got 25, 30% of the population that does support what's happening. They're mostly the so-called far-right, conservative right, the so-called imperialists. So people who support the idea that Russia is the empire. That is the kind of, again, it's a recurring narrative from the 18th century, more or less, right? Russia must be huge. Russia must be the biggest country in the world. Russia must define the laws by which the world is working, right? So for them, it's a trauma that Russia is a second or third league player. So these people appreciate what is happening. At the same time, we've got, well, let's say 30, 35% who try to be sort of neutral. They say, well, and they find different ways. They say, look, we know that the Kremlin is not always right. They're doing all sorts of crimes. They're rich. They're corrupt. And we can't do anything with that. But look at Ukraine. I mean, they're also thieves. And look at the West. It's like in the interest of the Western countries to increase the amounts of weapons sold to Ukraine. So it's in the interest of this military industrial block of the Western states. Kind of the cliche taken from the Soviet propaganda. And in a way, from the far-right conspiracy theorist in the US who claim that it's the military industrial block that killed John, John Kennedy, right? So it's a world of uncertainties. So we're uncertain about the uh, arguments of the Kremlin. We distrust them, but we can't do anything with them. At the same time, you know, Ukraine, America, they're all the same. So that's the narrative of cynicism that drives that 30-35%, roughly, right? And then we've got the people, the left 30%, again, roughly, that are actively against that, but they're afraid. Because what are you going to do? The Ross Guardia is not at the front line. So uh, if they go and protest, they will be arrested immediately, right? Uh, and you don't know what's going to be the outcome. You don't know when the regime is going to fall, next month or in, th in three years' time. What is going to happen to you? What's going to happen to your family? What's going to happen to your mortgage, career, etc.? So people sort of try to cope with that, and they're silent for very clear reasons. Certainly, when... And if there will be a much more massive unrest, probably triggered by women, mothers, wives of those mobilized men, when the protests will be slightly wider, 
those people who are not happy about what is happening are going to go to these rallies because it's easier to go and protest when you are actually in, in, in the bigger crowds and you have much more power to change things. Well, there's some very interesting stuff there, which we're going to discuss. Join us after the break uh, for the second part of Ilya's interview, plus our responses to listeners' questions. The How To Academy podcast is a bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They invite the world's most exciting leaders, scholars and entrepreneurs to share their ideas for transforming our lives and the world. Previous guests include Bill Clinton, Isabella Allende, Malcolm Gladwell, John Ronson, Lise Doucette, Patrick Radden Keefe, Madeleine Albright, Jane Goodall, Rory Stewart, Melinda Gates, Noam Chomsky and many, many more. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Well, when Ilya was giving us his analysis on how Russian society divided up in its attitude to the war, Saul wanted to know whether he thought that the third of the population, the young mainly, who were ideologically opposed to the war, was getting bigger. This is what he told him before going on to give a startling prediction of how bad things could get in Russia. Just to follow up from that, is there any indication, Ilya, that that 30% you've talked about who are against the war, but basically afraid, as you pointed out, they don't, they're, they're uncertain as to the consequences of acting. Is there any sign that that number is getting bigger? So doing sociological research in the uh, authoritarian regime that is gradually slipping into the totalitarian regime is tricky. There are official sociological polls and there are sort of unofficial polls. And unofficial polls say that, well, that this number is growing. The official polls can only show, let's say, how the population, for example, reacts to the media propaganda, what kind of media they watch. And we see that the number of people who cease watching TV shows, the major driver of propaganda, mm. this number is, is going down. Again, very gradually. Again, there are a lot of flows in this, in this research, but it's very important not to have your visual thinking driving your conclusions, right? As a Russian, I'd like this regime to fall and I'd like more people to be actually on the side of Ukraine. But as a researcher, I understand that probably it's not the point now. Probably it's the it's it's something that is going to happen in half a year time, for example. Again, really much depends on many factors. In the event of a Russian military collapse, which uh, is definitely a strong possibility, do you think there is enough left of Russian civil society to fill the power vacuum that that will probably create, i.e. if there is regime change, is the future chaos or is there any kind of you know cohesive opposition that, that could move in to effectively take over? How many cases of regime change we know that there would be some cohesive opposition coming and to replace the authoritarian regime? Well, Iraq is, 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 is a, is a yeah, an example that would, would not uh, give you much hope. But uh, I'm asking you as a Russian whether you get the feeling that we've used this phrase before, that society has been so hollowed out that, that uh, there, there is nothing but a vacuum. 
I wouldn't call this vacuum. I would call this chaos and I would call this lack of cooperation. What Putin's regime has managed to achieve to polarize and atomize the Russian society. Very rarely you're going to see the cases of solidarity between professionals. That actually even applies to journalists in exile, quality journalists in exile. That applies to people like ordinary people. There are no unions in the country that would properly work if there was some unionization, if there was some kind of attempt to strengthen unity by joining different causes on a big scale, on a medium-sized scale, that was suppressed by the regime. So the fact that people should support each other, contribute to various causes, it is there. Lots of young people, those who were not able to leave the country, they were able to grasp that idea. So they are there. The other thing is, what happens with the authoritarian regime collapsing and what happens next? Probably there would be a much more violent and aggressive government, provisional governments, probably led by some hardliners. We don't know. Which will fall because in terms of economy, they are really bad. And there is another issue. Russia is a huge country with lots of regional identities. So if things go really bad in the center, we will see civil society and these networks emerging in the regions further from Moscow, Siberia, the Far East, even this Northern Caucasus, Ural, etc. That's the biggest challenge to Moscow. And they realize that. But I don't think they will have enough power to control it. They have already exhausted some resources from the regions. They've taken the police to the front. They've returned some of them back. But if something serious happens in Moscow, like coup d'etat, there will be a lot of, like 1991, remember, there was quite a lot of uncertainty what was happening. And people on the ground in 1991, they just sat and looked for the outcome. Would it be beneficial for us to move move with Moscow? Would it be beneficial for us to just, you know, stay calm, figure out who are the stakeholders on the local level, and try to figure out how we're going to work? So there is a very high chance that there will be rapid disintegration of Russia as a result of it. And part of this will be civil society and kind of local structures that will be driving that. If anything, it's not going to be a very smooth process. Could I just ask you about uh, a name that came up last time we were talking about this, which is uh, Alexei Navalny. Is he any kind of force in the land these days? He's in prison. Yeah, but he's got a fo- he had a big following beforehand. Has that survived his incarceration? Uh, Yeah, I mean, some of the activists were put into prison and most of the management of his network is now in exile in Lithuania. But again, I think it is a quite a strong organization. They do have quite a lot of power and creativity to lead. The question is, A, do they have the program? So do they have, do, do they know what they're going to do? In the situation A, B, C, D, I'm not an insider, so I have no idea whether they're working on that. And B, whether they want to cooperate with other forces. And here I have a very mm, skeptical feeling that from what I know, 
they don't want to speak to or cooperate with anyone who represents the so-called Russian opposition. They see themselves as the main driver of the opposition. And here we are going to end up in a very similar dead end, in a way, of, of kind of Russian transitional politics. Everyone would want to be the kind of king of the day, which will impact on the quality and understanding that democratic regime is needed. And even though they're doing the right thing, they're kind of their anti-corruption agenda is very powerful. But they again fail on very important thing for every democratic society, building horizontal networks and trying to make alliances with the people whom they not particularly like, but the people who want the same thing for the country. Is there any indication, Ilya, that given the sort of potential for disintegration that you've been describing, the the current regime have identified that and are therefore looking for a way out of this conflict sooner rather than later, uh, possibly negotiating some kind of face-saving compromise? Mm, with whom? With the Ukrainians, with, with with the West more generally, but obviously with the Ukrainians. I don't think that at this stage there are some negotiations. I might be wrong. I don't know that, right? That there are some negotiations with the Ukrainians about some sort of a peace agreement. And no matter how harsh the situation is in Ukraine these days, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult to imagine any politician who will strike a deal, a living part of Ukraine, after what happened in the hands of the Russian state. So Ukrainians need complete victory, kind of the only power that can really green light the negotiation is Putin and kind of this, the highest circle of the so-called law enforcement elite, Patrushev, for example, they, the only reason they want negotiations is to recharge their weapons and bring more men to the front line. And everyone understands that, right? Putin is not the guy who wants to negotiate now for the sake of the peace. He wants, like, he cannot come as a loser. He cannot end up as a loser and he needs to bring something. And at the moment, there is nothing to bring. There is no complete region in Ukraine that is fully controlled by the Kremlin. Those, even those regions that they proclaimed in September as Russian regions are not under control anymore. So they're in a deep, deep trouble. So we're going to have very conflicting views on what is going to happen. And the only chance for the Kremlin these days is actually to freeze Ukraine and freeze Europe to death. And that's the only thing they want. Because then they think it is going to work. If we, if we manage to go through, we as Europeans, we as, you know, in a, in a way... Uh, hostages of this gas problem. If we manage to go through the winter 2022-2023, they're going to fail because that would leave Putin incredibly vulnerable because none of his weapons actually worked. Propaganda abroad doesn't work, right? India and China only need oil and gas. That's the only thing they need from, they do business, right? It's global business. And they're not interested in shocks. So they need oil. They get this oil, they're happy. But other than that, they're not going to be happy about if Russia sends the nukes to Ukraine. They understand it's going to ruin their business. And like millions of people will lose lots of money.
So that is the last thing they need, right? So basically, propaganda strategy fails, economic war fails, political gambling fails. The only allies is Iran, right? Not even Turkey, right? Although Turkey also gets its benefits. So Putin is left with nothing. Not even the sports team or not even the football team is now in the in the World Cup, right? So there is nothing to be proud of. Ukraine is not under control. People are dying for various reasons. So what's what is left, right? So I'm kind of I'm betting on the kind of collapse of the regime next year, just because it very much depends on the gas and oil and all those strategies. But certainly I might be wrong. But again, visual thinking against rational, critical thinking. Ilya, last question for you. You're a Russian born in Tomsk. What do you feel about the damage that's been done to Russia's reputation as a consequence of the war? Well, it's really difficult to find the right words as a Russian. On the one hand, I've been, I've been having like second, thirds, what is my kind of responsibility? Right. As a Russian citizen who left Russia many years ago, but still I kind of, I, I lived roughly 10 years under Putin. Right. And I've seen some of the major milestones. So there is something that I could be blamed for that. It's not my, it was my responsibility in many ways, but like it's a, it was a responsibility of every Russian at that time. But at the same time, I think the regime was going into the wrong direction for 10 years or so. There was a very slim chance of democratization, which we, as part of the civil society in Russia, failed to realize in 2011-2012. That was the end, right? When Putin came back to power, the only, the only uh, opportunity he had on hands to smash civil society, because that was the main threat. Then it was a constant search for compromise. Uh, something that I, I believe destroyed modern Russia, modern post-Soviet Russia as we know it from 1991. It was a constant compromise, right? That journalist is arrested. Well, okay, we're going to go and protest, but we're not going to change the whole kind of framework. We're not going to protest. We're not going to push the authorities. We'll see. We'll fight for another next one if it happens, right? That organization is proclaimed for an agent. Well, you can you can figure out the paperwork, right? So you can still operate in the country. So it's not that bad. Do you know what I mean? So like one step after another, after 2012, or another another example, a very good journalist working for the state-run media, doing a kind of great human-oriented project, like getting funding for like NGOs helping kids with terminal diseases. Absolutely fantastic thing to do. But you work and you're funded by the state or state-affiliated actors who can always come to you and say, look, we won't be able to give you the money if you're a journalist and if you are going to run this story about corruption in our company or how we money laundering could Kremlin's money. So what are you going to do, right? You have in... These weights, on the one hand, is the life of kids. On the other hand, is the investigative report about money laundering. And then you think, okay, how many of these reports have been published so far? What that has changed? 
And these are real lives. What I'm going to opt for. So daily compromise of many Russians. And even these days, right? It is a daily compromise. Should I close my eyes? Should I just turn off TV, turn off all the media sources, news sources, and just focus on my daily routine, my career, my life, my kids, my family? Well, it's a, it's a, it's an escape strategy, right? But in the end, it's not going to to be good for kind of Russia as a society, Russia as a country. Now, if you talk about the reputation, reputation-wise, it certainly is the end of the Russia that we know, because it is the moment when the imperial Russia is dying. Russia was empire for many years, for many hundreds of years, right? And the collapse of the Soviet Union was, in many ways, the first step to kill that empire. What is happening now is the end of this empire in in so, so, so many ways. So we're going to have, as thinkers, as public intellectuals, as academics, as people interested in that, we'll have to try and reconceptualize what is this place like Eurasia, starting from Central Europe and up to Japan and China and Mongolia? Like, what is this place? Can we call it, should it be divided into smaller, more national-oriented states? How it should look like? How to make this place prosperous, right? How to turn it, in other words, how to turn Russia into the new Canada? So... This is what is happening these days. But certainly, the first thing is the blame that the Russian leadership, the Russian media, the Russian political and financial elites will bear, right? Will have for what is currently happening in Ukraine. So that's that's the main thing, right? And certainly, it will be a very long period of, let's say, anti-Russian attitudes in many countries. I mean, look, I've been flying through Paris just a couple of days ago, and the guy saw my passport, and he was shocked, and he was not happy that I was there, although I had all the reasons to be there. So I think many of us, Russians, ethnic Russians, Russian citizens with Russian passports, will get used to that, even though it is directly it's not our fault, and partially it is our responsibility, but that's what it is, right? Well, that was really interesting, wasn't it? And I think the biggest thing I took away from that, Patrick, was his belief that Russia was backing itself into a corner. If its attempt to break the West and break support for the West through its war on gas and oil fails, he's absolutely convinced that the uh, regime itself, that's Putin's regime, will collapse next year. Um, he, He said, I'm betting on the collapse of the regime. You know, he's not absolutely sure of that, but he's beginning to suspect that it's being hollowed out from the inside and that really they haven't got many cards left to play. Yeah, that really was, um, you know, if I was listening to that in the Kremlin, I would think, yeah, he's, he's, he's absolutely right. I mean, they, they really are, as far as I can see, they don't really have any options that can restore Putin's power back to where it was before the conflict began. I was also very interested as an expatriate Russian in his acceptance uh, of Russia's future pariah status. I think this is a, a, a real burden that young 
forward-looking Russians like Ilya are going to have to carry with them for the next generation, rather than like the young Germans uh, who weren't directly affected by the war or involved in the war in 1945 had to. But I think something that hasn't been said enough is that for Russia really to reform itself and take its place again uh, you know, in the community of nations is that there has to be a mass acknowledgement of what's been going on there, not just in the recent past with Putin, but its conduct during the whole communist era, during the Second World War, because they won, uh, they've never actually had to confront uh, all the atrocities they committed, all the dreadful things that they did uh, in the same way that Germans had to as a consequence of their defeat. Germany was transformed by that inevitable judgment that it had to make on itself about its past. That hasn't happened in Russia, but I think it, people like Ilya would agree that it, that it has to if it's going to ever get out of the morass it's in at the moment. He also made uh, the point about personal responsibility, about how each Russian basically let things happen. He talks about the daily compromise that being Russian forced on you in the early to mid years of Putin's reign and how gradually the, you know, the civil and political rights were stripped away, freedom of speech. And, and we are now are where we are. And of course, it reminded me very much, Patrick, given your analogy about, about Germany and Russia in the Second World War, this reminded me about Nazi Germany in the 1930s, when there were a lot of people who weren't bad per se, but who let things happen. And it got to the point where once the security apparatus was in place, it was very difficult to do anything about it. You know, once you've crossed that Rubicon and you've allowed an individual or a regime to get too much power. It's how totalitarian states work, isn't it? It's all it's salami slicing. Uh, You just whittle away at people's sort of natural decency bit by bit. You know, it's the old sage saying about how when they came for the communists, I said nothing. You know, when when they came for my, it ends up when they came for my neighbor, I said nothing. And then they came for me. That's what happens. Let's hope that one good consequence of this war is a swift and hopefully bloodless collapse of the existing order. Yeah, and uh, a tiny note of optimism at the end, uh, depending on which perspective you're looking from. And he talked about the end of imperial Russia. You know, of course, this goes back a long way. We've discussed the history of Russia, but particularly this kind of sense among Putin and the ex-KGB type since the end of the Cold War, that you need to get back to a, a point where Russia is, is controlling a lot of the states around it that aren't, you know, necessarily ethnically Russian. So uh, if that's the case, then, you know, bring it on, frankly. But uh, we know that there are many other potential scenarios. I think whatever happens, the Russian Empire, as presently constituted, uh, is going to wither away. Uh, again, probably no bad thing. Okay, let's move on to some of the questions this week. And here's one from Ted King in Nova Scotia, Canadian. As a retired Canadian sailor of the Royal Canadian Navy, I'm interested in hearing more of the naval aspect of this war, especially in how drone warfare is becoming a force to be reckoned with both at sea and on land. Do you think Ukraine will be able to send the rest of the Black Sea fleet to the bottom by the conclusion of this war? Any thoughts on that, Patrick? Um, I think this is one for you. You're our naval expert. Uh, It's all, it would only be speculation, what I'm saying, I suppose. They certainly haven't got anything like the naval capacity of the Russians. But it is interesting that thus far, this hasn't really been a big big aspect of the war, except in a big sort of headline moments like the sinking of the the Moskva. What, What do you think? 
I think uh, what seems to be going on is that the naval war in, in the Black Sea is, an, is pretty much a non-event, a bit like the air war is over Ukraine, because both sides cancel each other out. Now, Ukraine, of course, doesn't have a powerful navy, but it does have the capacity to strike ships in the Black Sea, as we've already said, not just using improvised missiles, uh, but also with these naval drones. And that's under unmanned sea drones. We've already speculated on the possibility that our own special forces are assisting the Ukrainians in some way. And I suspect that is happening. So uh, does Ukraine have the capacity to send the rest of the Black Sea fleet to the bottom of the sea? Yes, but only if the Black Sea fleet comes out. Um, Of course, there's also the risk that it'll be attacked in harbour as it was in Sevastopol. So we don't know for sure, Ted. We're not experts in this, but we are uh, seeing very little activity from the Russian side in the Black Sea. Uh, That would tend to indicate that they don't think they can protect their fleet. I mean, right at the beginning of the war, of course, there was a possibility it was literally going to be anchored off Odessa while an amphibious force went in. We seem to be a very long way from that now. One from Wayne Totin here, who's just been looking at the map and uh, thinking about the next phase of the war, which he sees as being the Crimea. He thinks that both sides will have a problem there, uh, simply because of its geography. It's connected to the rest of Ukraine by a very narrow isthmus, easily defended. He's asking, do you two see a possible recapture of the Crimea by Ukraine? Or do you think, as I do, uh, that it could be the biggest stalemate so far in this war? Well, my immediate thought is, yeah, of course, it's uh, very defensible. But at the same time, I think when it gets to the point where Ukraine is actually threatening Crimea, the war will pretty much be over. And in these sort of key battlefields in the south and in the east, they will Ukraine will have prevailed. So basically, all you'll have left is in Crimea is a force which will find it almost impossible to be resupplied. It's a retirement centre. You know, it's a kind of, um, as, as um, Colin said last week, it's like a sort of um, Russian uh, Bournemouth. You know, it's full of retirees, <laughs> um, a lot of whom might have fled by then. So I think it may be sort of the last domino to topple. Yeah, and you've hit the nail on the head with the resupply, Patrick. We know from the uh, from the damage done to the Kerch Bridge that uh, there is an issue bringing supplies through the Crimea to, of course, the troops in Ukraine proper, but uh, there's an issue supplying Crimea itself. Uh, And not only will there be a voluntary flight of civilians from Crimea, if Ukraine genuinely does threaten it. And by the way, uh, one extra bit of news which we didn't really talk about was the uh, the fighting that's going on in the mouth of the estuary, that that spit, that sort of vital spit. Uh, There are indications that the Ukrainians are making ground there. And this, this really will, as we suggested last week, threaten Crimea. So I I think the Russians are in a very vulnerable position in Crimea uh, and we'll be keeping a close eye on that. So let's move on to a new question from our old friend Ivaris from Lithuania. Uh, He says, Jonas Ehrman, a Swede, has created one of the biggest and most influential Lithuanian volunteer organisations in Ukraine, which raises his question on the importance of volunteers in modern war. Are volunteers shaping the face of modern war? Are they important? Um, they are a feature of modern war, but they were, they've were they been a feature of, of war from time immemorial, Ivaris. Do they tip the balance? Uh, I'm not so sure. I, what you've got with volunteers, of course, is in some cases former soldiers, so they are trained, but you don't have that kind of unit cohesion, or at least you certainly don't have that at the beginning. It's good propaganda. You know, we think back to the 1930s with the international brigades fighting in the Spanish Civil War. 
were they that effective? That's a question. If you read some of the accounts, you can question whether they really were. So it's good PR to to show for uh, Ukraine, for example, that people from all over Europe are, are going to help in the fight. But how effective they are, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, the um, international brigades in Spain had a very mixed record. I mean, they certainly did shore up the defence of uh, Madrid when it was threatened by Franco's forces. But um, they were pretty sort of um, shambolic in in other theatres. So, as you say, propaganda, I think, rather than real battlefield impact. One now from Barry Hutchinson, whose son is actually uh, in theatre. He's working as a security advisor. He's ex-3-para. And he's working as a security advisor for media organizations there. Well, Barry's got a couple of questions. One is about um, U.S. arms shipments. He's, he's saying with well, these reports that there's a shortage, actually, of arms coming in from the U.S. after just nine months of, of the conflict. Why is this, given that America was able to sustain much longer campaigns, very long campaigns in Afghanistan, Iraq, etc.? Uh, so what's that all about? How come they're running short now? Secondly, uh, why aren't they using the old US A-10 Warthog, this anti-tank aeroplane that sort of hovers around the battlefield and then sort of dive bombs almost um, armor? Well, quick response to both of them from me. Um, I think the problem with the US supplies is not that they haven't got the kit. It's just that they, their own doctrine, their own military doctrine means they have to keep a certain level uh, for their own uses and uh, they're getting through uh, that surplus that... Uh, they had for you know emergency contingencies so it's not they haven't got the stuff it's just that it's 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 becoming sort of uh, according to their own uh, political and military doctrine um it's they're going to have to break their own rules that's how i see it on the question of the a10 i remember the old warthog from uh, the first gulf war when uh, we used to see them over the battlefield quite a lot they're quite scary things they hover uh, sorry they don't hover they kind of circle but quite slow speeds and often we were, or one or two occasions, we were out in the desert. This is when the battle had actually begun. And, of course, they didn't know whether we were friend or foe. So they would circle ominously while we sort of jumped up <laughs> and waving and sort of trying to convey the pilot that we were actually on their side before they then sort of, after loitering, they then sort of uh, rather reluctantly moved up. I think the simple answer is that that's the problem, is they're too slow, that they would be just too vulnerable. Also, it's a bit of a kind of huge uh, waving a huge stars and stripes flag over the battlefield, isn't it? It's, it's quite sort of provocative, uh, given that they may not actually be that uh, militarily effective. Yeah, and they haven't supplied planes full stop. So uh, that's the other point. I mean, we could argue that they should, uh, and we may be getting closer to that point, but they haven't done it yet. So I, I think I think that's another factor. But the other point is, you know, their main use is in a air to ground attack role. Well, actually, um, that's not certainly against armor. That's not really a problem for the Ukrainians at the moment. There's very little Russian armor operating on the battlefield as far as we can see, because it's so vulnerable to uh, anti-tank weapons. Right. Moving on, Damien from New Zealand asks us, uh, this is an interesting. What do you what do you think would happen if there were freely available internet in Russia? In other words, if they could, you know, get news and there wasn't a news blackout, if they could actually, you know, if there was freedom of information, frankly, and they could hear reports from all over the world about what was really happening. Um, he asks us whether we think that, you know, this this would actually lead to 
unrest against Putin probably is the answer. But I, I suppose the technical question is, is it possible to do it? You know, is it technically feasible, as Damien asked, the generic provision of free internet across a country that, you know, that whose government doesn't want it to be there? It doesn't sound to me very likely. Um, if people really knew what was going on, would it make a difference? Almost certainly. But is that likely to happen anytime soon? I don't think so, Damien. Yeah, the other thing is that, of course, even if they were told uh, what was going on, would they believe it, uh, having had their perceptions um, twisted by, you know, decades of propaganda in which everything that comes from the West is, is dismissed as fake news. So I don't think that would actually be a game changer. So here's a question from Paul Custer. He's a professor of history uh, in North Carolina in the United States. And, and he says, one of my students has a pal at West Point. They are unsurprisingly following uh, this war very closely. This makes me wonder about the implications given the conduct of the war to this point for military doctrine. Well, very good point, Paul. And they are undoubtedly following it very closely. We, we also had the suggestion uh, many episodes back that the, uh, you know, some of the moves made by the Ukrainian military had West Point's fingerprints all over them, or at least Fort Leavenworth's fingerprints all over them. So we, we suspect that there's actual, in, you know, real time involvement. It's not just a question of learning lessons, which the American military are very good at doing. It looks like they might actually be involved in the war in terms of advising the Ukrainians and helping them plan. And we certainly know that as far as intelligence gathering is concerned, there, there is enormous assistance from the West towards the Ukrainians. Actually, we've had a question along those lines from a chap called Ian Leith, and uh, he was asking whether we could address the question of to what extent uh, external NATO airborne intelligence assets uh, are being used in Ukraine and what effect uh, they're actually having on the on the uh, direction of the war. He particularly mentions uh, the RAF operations out of RAF Waddington, NATO AWACS flights uh, from – well, actually, this is from Germany, from uh, – Gellenkirchen, and indeed um, USAF flights operating out of RAF Fairford. Okay, we're not going to talk about this this week, Ian, because we've got next week uh, Robert Fox, very distinguished defence analyst, old colleague of mine, and he's going to be talking specifically about all this sort of stuff. So we'll deal with that then. Yeah, I think the general response from us at the moment is that it is having an extraordinary effect uh, as false multipliers. That that close uh, shave that there was with one of the rivet joints uh, flying over the Black Sea is an indication that the Russians are very aware that this is a problem for them. A final one from Dean Newton, who says, great pod. Thanks, Dean. He says that Russia going after power and water is awful, but didn't we do the same thing in Kosovo in the Kosovo conflict and uh, in the Gulf, he's very happy to be corrected. But uh, perhaps we should put it in context. Well, you you are absolutely right. And going even further back in the Second World War, Bomber Command's main job was to try and destroy all civilian facilities, not just um, power and water, etc., but the very houses that people lived in. So, you know, I'm, I'm actually a, a staunch defender of Bomber Command, but uh, certainly that was a pretty. Um, extraordinary precedent. Um, and in, in these more recent conflicts, yes, we did in the Gulf in particular, I remember uh, the second Gulf War in particular, they, uh, on entering Iraq, uh, we discovered that all the local uh, water purification plants, etc., had been knocked out by Allied bombing. And that had a, had a very direct and dramatic effect. This is the spring. Uh, it's already pretty hot and dry. And um, the, the civilian population, as we drove in, to Basra, 
were lining the streets shouting, my, my water in Arabic, because they didn't have any drinking water. So, yeah, we definitely went after civilian infrastructure there. And that was on people who were supposed to be liberating. So, yeah, that was a that was a particularly sort of badly thought out aspect of that campaign. And also, as it turned out, you know, pretty sort of inhumane one. Okay, before we go, we should flag up a couple of things. Uh, First of all, uh, do join our podcast feed. That's one dedicated to the podcast. And that's at at pod battleground. Uh, And also send in any questions you have to our email address. And that is battlegroundukraine at gmail.com. Well, that's it for this week. Do join us next time uh, when we'll be talking, as I said, to the Evening Standards Defence Editor, Robert Fox. We're also going to give you a um, bonus episode, which is, I suppose you could call it the Battleground Christmas Party. It won't be about Ukraine. It's going to be about the military history books that have come out this year. We're going to have a couple of guests. We're going to have a bit of fun. So um, listen out for when that's coming, probably be the week after next and look forward to joining you all next week. 